The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our God and Father in heaven, we come before you recognizing that there is something very significant and very special that is designed to take place during the preaching of your word. Lord, there is something eternal that can happen during the preaching of your word. And God, I know that I am an unworthy servant. It is not by my effort or my works that anyone in this room could be changed. But Lord, your spirit is able to transform us and to conform us into the image of your son. God, I ask that today that our minds would be set on heavenly things. Any distraction that is in our life, anything that might come up in our minds will be far from us. Lord, let our phones not distract us. Let our eyes not wander and our minds not not turn to the side. But God, I pray that you would please give us the ability to set our attention today firmly on you. And that by your spirit, you might change us and make us new, renew us in our strength. And God, today, especially as we look at some difficult and challenging and even some controversial issues, God, I pray that you would give us clarity and through your word, you would give us strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have watched a few funerals before on television, but only four. I watched the funeral of Princess Diana and Gerald Ford and Johnny Cash and R.C. Sproul. These four people have very little in common, but they do have at least two things in common, the first of which is that they are all now dead. The second thing that these people all have in common is that all of them were famous. But even them, with their great, big, famous, televised funerals, will someday pass from living memory. At best, they are going to become nothing more than a footnote in the history book that most likely no one will ever even read. One of the greatest tragedies of the death of the print newspaper is that now we have the ability to pick and choose whatever news we want to reach our eyes. We don't see things that we don't want to see in the news. And one of those great losses is the obituary section of the newspaper. I doubt that many of us spend our time during the week clicking around on websites looking for obituaries of people that we don't know, where in a newspaper you used to just randomly come across them. But I think it's very important for us to remember obituaries. What are these? These short statements that are intended to encapsulate the entire life and personality and experience and family of an individual in just a matter of a few short paragraphs? Obituaries remind us that we are mortal, that we too are going to die, and that we too are going to be remembered for something. And because of the curse, we know that each one of us are going to die, and that is a time that we are not sure about. And as... Someday, somebody's going to write an obituary about us. Even the most influential among us would not have our names or our obituaries in the New York Times. And if Gerald Ford is going to be forgotten, then most of us have no chance to make a big splash, enough for future generations to remember much about us, maybe even not our names. But there are two funerals in this section of Genesis that have been recorded for us. And being that they are in the eternal word of God, these obituaries are going to be forever remembered. In Genesis 23, Abraham laid to rest his wife, Sarah. And if you read that chapter in its entirety, it primarily deals with the bartering process of Abraham purchasing the place 
where she was going to be laid to rest. Then, in our chapter this morning, we see that the funeral of Abraham is presented. And it's been argued by many people that Abraham is perhaps the most significant figure to ever walk the face of the earth other than Jesus Christ. But we've reached this transition period in the book of Genesis. Abraham is now passing from the story, and Isaac and Jacob are now front and center. So what I hope to show you this morning is how significant parallels exist between the birth of Isaac and the birth of Jacob. And I hope that God would help us today to see why this has such deep and rich and meaningful theological implications for our lives. So our outline this morning is very simple. Point number one, Isaac as the child of promise. Point number two, Jacob as the child of promise. And then finally, point number three, believers, Christians as children of the promise. First, let's see Isaac as the child of promise. We could very easily spend the entire morning reviewing the manner in which God brought Isaac into the world. We could read about the promises that God made to Abraham. We could see that he and Sarah were way too old to bear children, but I don't think that we actually even need to step outside of chapter 25 in order to be reminded of the fact that Isaac was unique amongst all of his brothers. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures beginning in Genesis 25 verse 1, and we'll see this, I think, very clearly. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and uh, Laumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Before we fly past this, I want you to remember something and consider the fact that God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. Do you remember that? Count the stars, Abraham, if you can. Consider Genesis 18, 17 through 19, which says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. Now, the question that we need to be asking is this. Are these other children of Abraham also heirs of the promise or are they not? And we can see that Abraham did not believe they were heirs because he gives them no inheritance. Instead, he merely gives them gifts and sends them away. Now, before this week, I had never actually taken much time to think about these other children of Abraham. I'm curious if maybe you have either or if you, like me, have come to this passage and read through it rapidly and quickly and not taken time to examine it. But I would like to take that time this morning to answer a question that is widely debated by scholars, but I think has some importance. The question is this, were these children born before Isaac or after him? Now, if you read it just at a surface level reading, it appears as though there is a funeral for Sarah. There is a new marriage to this woman, Keturah. And then after that marriage, there are many more children born. I'm going to actually argue that Abraham fathered these children through Keturah long before Sarah died. I believe that these children were born through Keturah in Abraham's younger days 
because Keturah was at that time a concubine. But only after the death of Sarah did Abraham make Keturah an official wife. And I'm going to present to you a small portion of the argument. There are many arguments for and against this, but I'll present to you my position in three ways. First, in chapter 25 of Genesis, we see that this chapter is not in chronological order. In verse 20, it says that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, which means that Abraham would be 140 years old. Then they were unable to have children for 20 years, which means now Abraham is 160 years old when Jacob and Esau were born. According to verse 7, Abraham died when he was 175. So if we are doing the math here, Jacob and Esau were already 15 years old when Abraham died. Yet the author places the events in opposite order. Moses was not being sloppy when he was forming these paragraphs, and the Holy Spirit did not make a chronological error. Rather, what is taking place here is a transition chapter. Genesis chapter 23, actually, through the beginning of 25, is designed to be a narrative shift, which is pushing our focus away from Abraham and now moving it quickly and rapidly towards Isaac and Jacob. So we know this chapter is not fully intended to be chronological because it's clear from the text that it is not. Therefore, I think it's acceptable for us to argue that the fathering of these children is anachronistic. In other words, to say that it was taking place before the death of Sarah. Secondly, I want to argue that Abraham fathered Isaac when he was 100 years old, remember, Isaac was the child of promise, and he was too old to bear children. So when Sarah died, Abraham was 137 years old, 37 years after he had given birth to Isaac. So this is how the book of, of Hebrews describes Abraham when he was 100. Not 137, when he was 100. This is how he is described physically in terms of his ability to bear children. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore, Hebrews eleven twelve. So when he was 100 years old, physically speaking, he is referred to here by the scripture, by the spirit of God as being as good as dead. And it is very clear throughout the earlier chapters of Genesis that Abraham and Sarah were both beyond the age or capability of procreation. Although it is absolutely possible that God gave Abraham the supernatural ability to have children even into his 14th and 15th decade of life, I think that that interpretation actually flies in the face of the miraculous nature of Isaac's birth over against the birth of these other children. And here's a third portion of the argument that Keturah was likely a concubine long before Sarah had died. Then after the death of Sarah, she became a wife. Now, this is very confusing to our modern sensibilities. This is not how marriage works, thank God, in our modern society. A concubine, though, was a woman who was brought under the protection of a wealthy man and who would serve him by increasing the size of his household. Moreover, those children that she bore to him were to be considered workers. Now, we look at children as, in one sense, very expensive, right? When we begin talking about having kids, we're like, I don't know if we can afford it. One thing that, as a pastor, I've heard oftentimes people are like, well, we're thinking about having kids, but I don't know if we can make it financially. 
Well, that's not how children used to be viewed. For us, we view them in some sense as an expense, but in those days, they were looking at them as a long-term investment strategy. They become part of the household and do not receive any of the inheritance. Instead, they begin to serve and work and produce wealth for the family. Concubines were also often gifted to wealthy individuals by foreign leaders. So Abraham moves into a new place. People don't want to mess with him. Remember, Abraham was formidable. He was able to conquer the battle of the four kings. So it's likely that people had given to him these women as they were traveling. And this is what you often see taking places in, for example, in the early stages of the kingdom of Israel. How is it that Abraham, or how is it that David and Solomon ended up with all these concubines? It's because they were very involved with foreign leadership of other nations, and they would often gift these women to them. It was a matter of diplomacy. Once again, thankfully, this is not the way that the world operates now. Now, we know from the Word of God that this is not the intended design for humanity. There is nothing that ever says that Abraham is doing something good here. This is not commendable and not something that we should take as uh, something that we stand on in practice. Marriage is designed to be between, between one man and one woman who will develop a one-flesh union and covenant themselves together. And this union is divinely established. For as Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, when two people get married, there is something taking place in the heavenly realms that we can't fully understand where God is actually at work joining them together. You are not merely married because you say, I do. You are married because God has done a work that we cannot deny. Now, if you look again at verses 5 and 6, you'll notice something very interesting. It says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Now, concerning the children, there are only two categories listed. Here's another reason why I'm saying that I believe Keturah was a former concubine. Because it says, to the children of those who were concubines, he gave gifts and sent them away. These children must have been all older than Isaac. Yet, while they were, um, yet we see that they were not heirs of the promise. The birth order was irrelevant because God had only promised to bless the world through the descendants that came from one particular child, which was Isaac. So let's just say for a moment that this entire argument that I have made here is inaccurate. Let's just say for a moment that I'm wrong about all of the timing of these children's birth. And let's say my interpretation is faulty. There is at least one child here in this chapter that we know for certain that he was born before Isaac, and that is Ishmael. Ishmael actually makes a pretty big cameo here in this chapter. He actually came to Abraham's funeral, overlooking all of the break in family relationships that had taken place earlier on. He returns, and he helps and assists in burying Abraham in Machpelah. Verse 9 says, Isaac and Ishmael, the sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Yet, Ishmael was not given any of the inheritance. He was not the recipient of the covenant. In defiance of the customs of that day, the older was passed over in order to serve the younger. And I believe that this is very important because we are going to see a clear parallel taking place here between Isaac and Jacob in this way. Not all who are of Abraham are of 
Abraham. Not all who are biologically born from Abraham received the covenant promises of Abraham. And before we move on, I want you to see one more quick thing. Verse 6 says, But to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from Isaac eastward to the east country. Abraham sent all these other children back to the same place that God had called him from. He sent them to the same place that he had been called out of. This is the same place where he had just previously, in the last chapter, 24, told his servant, by no means send my son back there. Swear to me that you will never send Isaac back there. But where does he send all of his other children? Back there. Now, I think it's very important that we see in the book of Genesis, moving eastward is always designed as a physical geographic metaphor of someone moving away from God. Let me give you a couple really quick examples. Genesis, Genesis 3.24 says, He drove out the man, and at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, this is when Adam and Eve are forcefully removed from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. So why did God block the east end of the garden? It is indicating here that they were removed by God through the east end of the garden. So this east is always, from this point forward, considered the idea of moving away from the sanctuary of God or the presence of God or the holiness of God, moving away from him, oftentimes intentionally. God removed them from that original sanctuary and cast them out to the east. Genesis 4:16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And as he went away, notice the very next words say, and he settled in the land of Nod, where is it? East of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord to the east. Genesis chapter 13, verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed which direction? East, and they separated from each other. And we all know how, how poorly this worked out for Lot. He ended up a disgrace. He ended up in a city that was filled with sin. And then even when he was removed, ended up fathering children with his own daughters. What a disgusting situation that took place, all because of his intentional movement away from God. These people, as we see Moving east is always something to do with moving away from God and even often deals with something to do with exile, whether intentionally forced upon yourself, exiling yourself from the people of God and the face of God, or whether God is doing it for you and to you. But people's movement to the east in Genesis always seem to indicate an intentional movement away from God. So the picture that is being painted for us here with Abraham sending away his children is this. God chose one. Likely, and I believe very firmly, the youngest one of many brothers to bless them, and the rest were all sent away to the east, away from the presence of the Lord. And as we see later on, I believe that this is something that we can parallel to the electing love of God. Now, Isaac became a spiritually minded man. He prayed for children, unlike Ishmael, because God had chosen him, not the other way around. Isaac did not choose God. God chose him. So now we come to point number two. Jump down in your Bibles to verse 19, and we will see that Jacob is also a child of the promise. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, of the Aramean, to be his wife. 
And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, Isaac was born, remember, as the result of something miraculous that God was doing. He was born by God in an amazing way, opening his mother's womb. So he was fully aware that God was able to answer this kind of a prayer. So God had made Rebekah barren, and she was barren for 20 years. Verse 21 says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Now, it's hard to see this in English, but the verb tense there in the original Hebrew indicates that this was not a one-time prayer. It indicates that for those 20 years and during those 20 years, there was an ongoing practice of prayer. It wasn't that he simply got to the end of the 20 years and he, he thought, I'm at the end of my rope. We're getting a little older. What are we going to do? Now it's time to pray. Rather, it seems that he faithfully prayed for his wife during the continuation of those 20 years and the Lord answered in his perfect time. How many of us would do that, I wonder? Do we pray like this? Do we pray consistently and faithfully for our family members to be saved? Do we pray for our missionaries like this? Do we pray for those in our lives who have been suffering for a long time? Or do we just have a flippant attitude which says, you know what, I prayed about that already. So I guess God already knows what I want and he can answer me if he he feels like it. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, quote, earnestly. And Paul tells us that we should pray without ceasing. There are these t-shirts that used to exist when I grew up. It was was a kind of funny stage in Christianity when all the t-shirts that Christians made were were terrible. I think most of them still probably are. But there was this one t-shirt that I actually used to own as a kid, which had a picture of a guy's knees on it. And the the jeans were like torn at the knees. And it said, pray hard, right? It was a a play on the word play hard that would become a very famous saying. So you were supposed to pray hard. And this idea of praying hard is a very interesting one. I, I hear people say this often. And I think that I've even probably said, I prayed really hard about that. But what are we actually asking or saying that we are doing when we are praying hard? Does it mean that we just we just prayed a little with our fists like this or with we were clenching our teeth or we were closing our eyes really tight? What does it mean when we say that we are praying hard? We are getting trying to get God to listen to us. How does the Bible show us to pray like that? It teaches us that we are designed to pray consistently and faithfully focused on a regular practice of taking our cares before the Lord so that God who cares for us will hear them and answer them when it is good for us. So we need to be praying like Isaac, faithfully bringing these things consistently to the Lord, not dropping it like a hot potato after we've prayed one time. Look now down to verse 22. The children struggled within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now, I personally, I cannot imagine, I can't imagine being pregnant, uh, thankfully. I have been uh, recently seeing that there are these machines, though, that they have created where men can kind of have their, uh, the, the pain of childbirth simulated by plugging up these different electrical nodes to different muscles on your body, and they hook They hook up a man whose wife is about to go into labor and say, if you really want to know what your wife is going to go through, here, try this. And then they turn the voltage up as high as it can go. And the men just writhe in pain, rolling around in agony, 
I can't imagine what it must be like to go through childbirth. But even so, even before that, I can't imagine what it's like to have another human being living inside of your belly. God has done something incredible in designing the human body. But Rebecca knew something unusual was taking place. This is not a normal pregnancy here. There was something more than just cute little kicks or baby hiccups or that big stretch that a baby does inside of your your womb. There was something much greater happening there. There was a war happening within her womb. So what does she say at the end of verse 22? It says she went to inquire of the Lord. She goes to God in prayer. Something wrong is happening here. There is something violent occurring inside of my body. And she doesn't know. There's no ultrasound. She doesn't know there's two children here. She just knows something is crazy that is happening. And so she goes to God in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be the stronger, stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. God was right. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, Rebekah's children were at each other's throats before they were even born. Like, I, I deal with my children, and sometimes they're like at war, but I can't imagine. They were already fighting before they even she had even given birth. But I want you to notice that Jacob was chosen, and he was set apart by God before his birth, and Esau was not. Both brothers could easily be classified as ungodly in the earlier stages of their lives. Please notice, Esau was flippant with the things of God, and he was filled with hatred and rage to the point of wanting to kill Jacob when Jacob stole his blessing. And Jacob was a cheater, and he was a liar and a scoundrel. And as we go through the next several chapters, you're going to see neither one of these warrant God's love. Neither one of them are deserving of it. Yet eventually God is going to work a change in the heart of Jacob. He never leaves Jacob and he continually disciplines him and transforms him until by the end of his life, Jacob himself is filled with faith. So you should see that not all who are of Isaac are of Isaac. Isaac has these two children at the same time, but not all who are biologically descended from him receive the blessing of him. So why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Let's try to narrow down the reasons a little bit here. Was it because Jacob was a better person? Absolutely not. Because the decision was made, it says, before they had ever done anything. They're not even born yet. They were not even born when God declared the older would serve the younger. It was definitely not by merit. Was it because, was he chosen because of tradition? No, absolutely not. In fact, this flies in the face of tradition. The older will serve the younger? No, this is backwards. It was designed in their culture that the younger would always be the servant of the older. The older would receive the greater inheritance. Was Jacob chosen because of his bloodline? Obviously not, because these two had the same parents and shared a, shared a womb. They were not just roommates, they were womb mates. And God chose them, one of them, for a reason, but not the other. God chose him for a reason that we don't see here 
in the Old Testament. Why is it God that Jacob was selected? And we're not going to find that out until we get to the New Testament, which we'll discover here in a few minutes. Jacob would go on to be the heir of the promises, even though verse 28 shows us that Isaac preferred Esau. If you, if you want to know how it would work naturally, the father would want to give the blessing to his oldest. He loved Esau. And that's where he wanted the blessing to go to. But even against the will of Isaac himself, God sends the covenant down through Jacob. And we will later see that God even uses Jacob's own sin to result in the blessing being transferred to Jacob. And how God will also renew the covenant directly with Jacob. Then God would give Jacob 12 sons, which would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And through this line, God would send Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. But I want to consider for a moment Esau, on the other hand. We know that storyline. We know the, how to trace the story of, of Jacob all the way down to Jesus. But I think it's less likely that we know about what's going on here with Esau. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. Edom has a lot of occurrences in the Old Testament. You see them pop up here and there. They become the enemies of the Jews. And God always give, gives victory to Israel over against Edom because the older will serve the younger. And in some sense, Esau here and his descendants are going to take up the mantle of the serpent that we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. They're going to take up the, the position of fighting against God and his promises. And Isaac's line is going to result in the seed of the woman that crushed the head of the serpent. Now, perhaps the most well-known Edomite in the entire Bible is Herod the Great. He was a puppet king. He was set in place by the Roman government. He made it his mission to kill the Messiah to the point where he said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to kill every baby that is two years old and younger. He was wiping out every child in that city of Bethlehem. And then roughly 30 years later, Jesus stood before another Edomite, the grandson of Herod the Great. He is also known as Herod. And Jesus stood before Herod and he was in trial. Herod had the opportunity to approve the death of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus stood before him absolutely stone silent, never opening his mouth or saying a word. Now it appears in this instance that the seed of the serpent is victorious. It seems in this moment that the serpent is winning. It seems that death is going to be victorious. But we know that God was doing something amazing. Although the serpent would bruise his heel, this very action was what was taking place to crush the head of the serpent. But let's move forward now to our third and final point, which is that every single Christian is a child of the promise. In the New Testament, Paul picks up this theme of the child of the promise. And before we read it, I want to give you a little bit of context of what he's doing here. Paul is lamenting the fact that not many of the ethnic Jews were turning to Christ. In fact, most of them were rejecting Jesus and moving from him. He was distraught about it to the point that he describes himself this way in verse 2. He says, quote, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul even goes so far to say that he would be willing to be cut off from Christ if it would mean that all of his ethnic brothers, the Jews, would be saved. Then Paul lists things that belong to the Jews. They are, the Israel, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. That's who we're talking about today, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. 
To them, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But then we arrive at verse 6, and he says, If it belongs to them, why are they not receiving it? If this was sent to them, then why are not all these people coming to Christ? And he answers that in chapter 9. He anticipates that some would declare that the word of God or the promises of God had failed. So he says straightforwardly in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Well, why not, Paul? How can you define or describe what is taking place here without seeing that something has been lost, without seeing the promises that have failed? Here's how. This is where we reach the principle that we have been seeing repeatedly this morning. Verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who are physically from Abraham are of Abraham. Not all who are physically of Isaac are from Isaac. Not all who are from Jacob, whose name changes to Israel, are from Israel. They are not all part of the same thing. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Biology is not the key here. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So please understand what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 through 8. He is declaring straightforwardly, there are some who are Jewish, who are physically, biologically descendant, who are part of that covenant group of people who will be saved. And there are some who are not. And he's going to later express how this now goes beyond the bounds of the Jews and how God has brought even the Gentiles in. That's why we are sitting in this room today. Because if that did not happen, I don't think any one of us would biologically be allowed to be in heaven. But by God's grace, this has extended far beyond the biological Abraham line. Paul is going to then recount the history of Jacob and Esau. And in doing so, he is going to produce the answer to the question that we asked earlier. Why was Jacob set apart? Now, this is a very important question. Why did God choose him, but not Esau? Verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. So why did God choose Jacob? So that his own purpose of election might stand. That's the answer that's given to us. God did it so that his own purposes would come to pass. So to close, I'm going to take time to do three things here and show you three things about the doctrines of uh, the doctrine of election over the next couple of minutes. First, I want to define what it is and what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word election. Secondly, I want you to see that it is, it is richly and, and, and thoroughly biblical to believe in the doctrine of election. And thirdly, I want you to see that this doctrine is not something we should just bear. It is something we should rejoice in. The New Testament uses the term elect or election 19 times. One of those times is referring to the elect angels. The other 18 are always referring to a specific people that God has set apart for himself before the beginning of time. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 is speaking to Christians. And in it, Paul writes, quote, He chose us 
in him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, we all know Romans 8.28, right? We know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We know that verse, right? But do we know why that is true? Do we know what directly follows it? Did you know the next verse actually gives you the grounds that holds up verse 28? Just here's a quick note uh, as you're reading your Bible that will help you. Whenever you read a statement or a declaration and the next sentence begins with the word for or because, you need to read that because it substantiates the claim that is being made. And it tells you why God is doing or promising that thing. So why or how is God promising that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Here's why. Verse 29. For or because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are some people who argue that God chose his people by looking down through the corridors of time and by seeing those that would respond properly to the gospel and then he elected them or chose them based upon what he knew they would come to do there are many reasons that is foolish thinking and i don't have time to dismantle this this false theology very uh thoroughly today but let's just examine a few things very briefly that make this obviously uh faulty thinking Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that God chose Jacob before he or Esau did anything good or bad, right? Let me ask you the question, what is the point in him making that statement? Why does he elaborate and say before they had done anything, God chose them? It is specifically stating that their actions were not the cause of the electing love of God. They had nothing to do with God's choice. God chose them apart from their works. Also, consider that Romans chapter 8, verse 29 is not speaking about God knowing information about people. God knew everything about all people, correct? It's not saying what God foreknew that people would do, he elected, right? Or predestined. It's not saying anything about what he knows about them. It is talking about knowing a certain group of people for whom he foreknew. In other words, he knew a set, a section, a certain percent or a part of the populace for whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew. So as we are seeing here, he knows a specific group of people that God knew in a unique way. This word knew or know is not the same as just intellectual knowledge or understanding. God knows all things. There's nothing he did not know. What it means is to set your affection upon them. Adam knew Eve and she bore Seth. There's something going on there besides intellectual knowledge. God says to Israel, you among all the nations have I known. Did he not know about the Moabites or the Edomites? Of course he did. It means that there is a special affection that is being set upon them. So we could even translate this, for whom he foreloved, he also predestined. There is a group of people upon whom God has set his love. Finally, if God made his choice based upon my choice, then God chose nothing I did. 
If God elected or chose or predestined or decided based upon what I was going to do, then I am the one who ultimately ultimately made the choice, not God. And this undermines the entire point of what Paul is actually saying in Romans 9.16 when he says, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. All of the onus is upon him, not upon us. There's also, uh, I've heard this before, and I believe it was John Calvin who argued this. He said if it was something that God was looking down the corridors of time and waiting to see somebody do something good, then he would be waiting for eternity. For he would never see anything good in us that would cause him to respond in deciding to love us. Now that is butchering the quote, but you understand the idea. So why does God choose some and not others to be part of his sheep in his fold? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, gives us the answer. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, according to the purpose of his will, this phrase here, reveals that God chose the people that he chose because he wanted to. Now, when my children say, Daddy, can I do this? And they say, no. And they say, why not? And they say, because I said so. They don't always view that as a a reasonable answer. When God does what he wants, we should say amen. Because God is the prime mover in the universe. He is the one that the universe is all about. And God has the right to make his own decisions and his own choices. And he chose the people for what reason, according to Ephesians 1? To the praise of his glory. In other words, God is doing what he is doing for the purpose of bringing himself maximum glory. Which is an excellent thing for him to do. Because he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. So by election, or we could also use the word predestination, I mean that God personally and unconditionally and effectually set apart a people for himself. This group of people is only known to himself, and he chose them based on nothing other than the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glory. The second thing that I want you to consider about the doctrine of election is that it is biblical. Not only that it is present in the Bible, but that it is everywhere in the Bible. First of all, If the words are present in your Bible, you have to deal with them. So if a Christian says, I don't believe in election, they're not a Christian because it's in the Bible and Christians, by definition, believe the Bible. So all Christians believe in election or predestination. They just sometimes define the terms differently. And the doctrine is found everywhere. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a taste here, and I'm not going to take time to describe or define these, but I want you to see that this is something that is all over the Bible by giving you kind of a a broad spectrum here, very briefly. God chose Israel, not the other way around. Israel did not choose God. God chose them, as we see in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? It was not because you were more in number than any of the people the Lord has set his love on you to choose you. For you were the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God love Israel? Two reasons are listed. One, I love you because I love you, right? I mean, that's how God answers the question. Why do I love you? Because I do. Because I choose to love you. 
And secondly, because of the promise that he had made to Abraham. The Israelites would sing about God's love later on, in, for example, in Psalm 65, verse 4, in this way, Blessed is the one that you choose to bring near, to dwell in your courts. Who is blessed of God? Those that God chooses to bring near. Jesus also explained election to his disciples in this way in John 15:16. He said, "You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that you should your sh- uh, fruit should abide." And after the resurrection as the church was spreading and when the gospel was being preached, who is it that actually came to believe the gospel? Who actually listened to the preaching and responded in faith? Take a look Acts 13:48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord. And here's the key phrase I want you to see. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let me ask the question, who is it that believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Who appointed them? God did. That's why we have the promise that our evangelism is never worthless. As Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them all to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So here we see the The doctrine of election leads us to understanding that God also brings his people to him sovereignly. Here's the last thing that I want you to see. Allow me to close with this. We should love the fact that God has elected his people. We should love this, that he has chosen a people for himself. Many people hate it. It's an affront to their their pride. It's an affront to the way that they perceive the world. There are many people who would drag me out of this very pulpit for preaching these words right now. But these words are actually a delight and a beautiful thing. And I want to show you why. We have a tendency to believe that we are the center character, the primary focus of the grand narrative of the universe. When you wake up in the morning, you believe naturally that the, the universe revolves around you. That is your vantage point. But these What we are seeing here is that God is actually the center of the universe. And when you put God at the center where he is supposed to be, then it is not unfair for him to do whatever he would like to do. Why would God choose some and not others to be saved? That's something that we shouldn't even be asking. God chooses because he wants to, because he loves who he chooses to love. And some people cry out for fairness and will say, that is unfair. That is absolutely unfair for God to do such a thing. But in reality, fairness is the last thing that we should ever ask for. Because fairness would result in every last one of humanity burning in hell. So if we shift our focus to consider the universe that is a reality with God at the center of it, and that we are merely side characters in his story, then we will perhaps begin to grasp the fact that God would be perfectly justified in sending us to hell for our sins, so the fact that God has chosen anyone is supremely merciful. But here's the best news, and I think our eyes tend to gravitate very quickly to the part that says, Esau I hated, but we need to actually dwell on the fact that it says, Jacob I loved. There is a people, there are human beings, sinful people who have rejected God, that God, in spite of that, has loved. And God does love his people. And his love is unquenchable. And he has set his affection on us. And there is nothing in all the universe that can ever take that away from us. And that is good news. 
And that is only true if it is God who elects. If I am saved because I chose God, then I am unsaved by unchoosing him. But if Christ, in Christ we stand forever because he sought us and he bought us and he did not buy an opportunity to save us. He actually saved a people for himself at the cross. The gospel is of first importance. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was coming for his sheep and he was dying for them. And the electing love of God should result in our most utmost worship for him because it removes any grounds for pride. I did nothing to make myself worthy of God. I did nothing to make God love me. I did nothing that would produce a response in him that says, I want that guy on my team. Rather, the doctrine of election brings the deepest form of humility imaginable. And it causes us to say, it is by grace through faith that I have been saved. It is not of works. I cannot boast in anything that I have ever done. Thank God for loving me, even a wretch like me. I, even when I can't understand it. I want to close with this final verse. Galatians chapter 5 verse 28. Now brothers. Now you brothers. Like Isaac. Are children of the promise. So brothers and sisters. We are children of the promise. If we stand in Christ. So let's stand in the love of God. Knowing that he loves us. In spite of us. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior. I encourage you to stay after talk with me. I want you to know this God who loves. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to delight in the fact that you have loved us and set your affection upon us. Lord, I pray that we would delight in the fact that we have become your people, that you have made us your own, not because of works done by our own hands, but very much so in, in over against them. Lord, all that we have ever done is to work our way away from you, far from you, but God, you have sought us and bought us and run after us and sent your son to even die on the cross for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would trust in you and we would rejoice in you and that we would worship you. Lord, I pray that we would develop a strong understanding of the electing love that you have for your people. And God, I ask that if anyone here today does not know you, that you would open their eyes to believe, for God, only you can produce that miracle in their life. So God, I pray that you would do that even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.